This week's episode is brought to you by Patreon supporter Doc Kennedy. If you'd like to learn how you can support the podcast on a small, recurring monthly donation, just log on to schooloflaughs.com forward slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thanks, Doc. Welcome to the School of Laughs podcast, brought to you by schooloflaughs.com. Whether you're an aspiring comedian, a part-time pro, or a speaker who wants to become funnier, this is the podcast for you. We'll break down tools, tips, and techniques to help you get bigger, better, and more bookable. And now, here's the show. Welcome to the School of Last podcast. Rick Roberts here. And on today's episode is part two, where Joel Byers from the Hot Breath podcast picks my brain for a little while about how I got started and what motivated me and all the different directions I've taken comedy in these uh, 28-some-odd years of stand-up comedy. So if you enjoyed last week where I talked to Joel, you know he's a good-hearted guy, got a good uh, insight into comedy. He's going to let that insight run all over my brain in this episode and uh, find out some stuff about me you probably didn't know. Hopefully it's not boring. Uh, Hopefully you can learn a couple of takeaways. And if you're listening to this on the release date, November 1st, yeah, that's a Wednesday, tonight I'll be at Third Coast Comedy Club recording my new album. It'll be a new album, a collection of kind of some favorite bits and some new things, and I need some laughs there in the audience to make it happen. So come on down, Third Coast Comedy Club, 7.30 p.m. Along with me, Brian Bates will be opening the show. going to be a fun time. Tickets are just 10 bucks. All right, let's get into this week's episode with Joel Byers picking my brain. Let's go. It's rolling, buddy. It's rolling. Rick Roberts said Roland in his Woodstock shirt, of course. <laughs> yeah, how about that? <laughs> You're perfect. You know, yeah. I got this shirt. Uh, I, my wife got it for me from Walmart. Are you serious? Yeah, I was in Walmart one day running there to get an SD card. And I, I saw, man, it's a cool Woodstock shirt. It's like a replica of the old one. Yeah. And so my birthday was coming up in August. And she goes, what do you want? I'm like, man, I saw this shirt at Walmart. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you got seven seventy seven or eight eighty eight to spend on me, but I'll take it. And uh, yeah, I love it. I'll get all these compliments on the shirt when I'm out and about. It's awesome. Did you ever go to actual Woodstock? Not that old, man. Oh, I knew you were an yeah. old hippie, though. Yeah, I made it to a few concerts back in the day, but let's uh-huh. say the the closest thing to a Woodstock that I made it to would have been driving by Bonnaroo. On the okay. way down to Atlanta. <laughs> Just got a contact high from yeah, being by Bonnaroo. Yeah, that's all I needed. You, know, yeah. you hear little Dave Matthews come to the air and like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is so exciting, man. I'm such a fan of you. Well, thanks. And um, I feel like we share a lot of the similar sensibilities and passion for comedy. And it's it's really an honor to be in your lair here. What do you think? You have like your own office. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like the Batcave in a way, right? For comedians so you're like uh you're like a professional comedian with like an office isn't that crazy that's what a george carlin had too right he had his own office i think he did yeah mine came out of the need uh especially when my kids were even younger and when they were babies it just you know would just throw down and stress out and scream all day long <laughs> i'm like i gotta go <laughs> yeah wow. i gotta go somewhere uh-huh. so for like a year i would go to like the marriott and just sit in the lobby because they had free wi-fi and they had a starbucks in there <laughs> And so I'd go for three or four hours and just kind of focus. Mm-hmm. And then after a while, I'm like, I'm tired of lugging that stuff around. And I started uh, teaching classes outside of Zany's. I thought, well, if I got an office that was big enough to have eight or 12 people in here, I could do it here. 
And so I found this place, and it's just been a real, real good thing. You teach out of here? Sometimes, yeah. Uh, Bigger classes I teach downtown at SIR, which is Studio Instrument and Rentals, which is a place where bands go to get tuned up for a recording and a CD or going on the road. Mm -hmm. But they have these great four-hour blocks. You can rent a facility, and they've got the microphones. They've got projectors, screens, all that jazz. Oh, okay. So uh, to make it more convenient for my students, I do it down there. But if I do a, a weekend one or something, I'll do it up here so I don't have to fight traffic. And you, you play music too, don't you? I do a little guitar. I've got yeah? a few uh, CDs. <laughs> I think I'm getting ready to record my ninth or tenth CD. I'm not sure how many. Are you is. ninth or tenth? Yeah. Whoa, so, dude. Been at it since 92. So. Will you start right after college? Yeah, I had a job right out of college. Had a couple of like, little jobs and then went to an open mic one night. Long story short, I didn't know it was for comedy. And then I found out it was for comedy when I got done. And uh-huh. I got bit by the bug. And a year later, I was done with civilian life and <laughs> head straight into comedy you enlisted into comedy i did man with an improv group which is great because when i signed up with them i had 35 40 weeks booked right away mm-hmm. and then that got me into clubs doing improv and they would sometimes a lot of guys in the improv group didn't want to host the show because it was not you know you're not as funny as a host mm-hmm. i'm like let me host it and so i worked on my stand-up chops and then i at the end of the week i'm like hey can i come back and MC sometime oh and so they really kind of bought my ticket in you're always a savvy businessman. <laughs> well, I think just out of desperation, because I really didn't want to go back to my two or three little jobs that I had. What were they? Well, uh, the the real job, I had a short-term real job at um, Simon & Schuster, book publishing division okay. in Columbus, Ohio. And it was basically data entry and running reports across the internet. I didn't know it was the internet back in 91, but that's what it was. I was wondering, if I, what was the internet then? Yeah, yeah, it was weird, man. And I messed that up so much that uh, they didn't mind when I left. <laughs> They're like, all right, our productivity's going up, and we're going to hit the profits this year. <laughs> <laughs> when did you start hitting profits in comedy? How long did that whole thing take? That's a good question. You know, the first year that I was full-time, you know, I was... With the improv group, we had five guys on the road mm-hmm. and two other guys that stayed back. So we had seven in the group, plus a business manager and a rehearsal space to pay for. So we were cutting each week like eight ways. <sighs> but I was still able to come out with two or 300 bucks a week, you know. So luckily early on, my only expenses were like a truck payment that was like 150 bucks. And I split an apartment with two other comics. That was 150 bucks each. <laughs> And whatever I spent on cigarettes or, you know, oh. pasta and, and chicken, you know, there's a lot of pasta and chicken. You go get the rotisserie chicken on Monday mm-hmm. and then you'd eat a good chunk of that. Then the next day, you take some slabs off of it, throw it in the pasta, you know, by Wednesday, you kind of restart the cycle. Yeah. I was always big on the Publix BOGO, the buy one, get ones on the pasta. I would yeah. load up on that stuff. Yeah. Cause Publix isn't cheap, man. No, but get buy one, get one free. You got to take advantage of that. can't pass it up. That brings it down to normal prices. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so it started out as improv, and was that in Ohio? Yeah, based okay. out of Columbus, Ohio, out of the Funny Bone up there is kind of where we got our start. And then, you know, at the time, that improv group had three or four weekly gigs on the Ohio State campus. So even if I didn't go on the road with them, you'd stay back and do Ruby Tuesdays, which was not – the place that we all know is Ruby Tuesdays, but a little bar there. And then we did a weekend club called the Hey Hey Club. And then we do a few other things. And on the nights those weren't going on, there was open mics every night of the week except for Friday and Saturday. Oh, you make comedy sound so easy. It was there was a plethora <laughs> of places to perform. Uh-huh. You know, which there are in Atlanta now, like where you're from. And yeah. here in Nashville, there's something almost every night of the week. Oh, that's great. Yeah. So you can have an idea on Sunday. 
you know, there's three open mics on Sunday, mm-hmm. two on Monday. So by the end of Monday, you kind of knew if the joke had any traction at all. Yeah. And then you tweak it as you went. So you're able to build up your hour a lot quicker than just doing like one open mic a week. Do you still do like a bunch of open mics? Not a bunch, but uh, leading up to this CD recording, I've been kind of hitting a few of them, mm-hmm. just kind of getting them, get the getting the dead wood chopped out of the material. Because <laughs> basically, I, right now, I, I work on new material in my corporate events, and you know, corporate audiences are different than a comedy club audience. Yep. And so you can be a little bit wordier there and tell a story, and they enjoy it. But a comedy club, they're more like, come on, let's go. Mm-hmm. So then hitting a few open mics to kind of tighten it up. So that is, you start in 91. I was not a math major. So how many years is that? I'm like 27 years into it. 20, dude. I know. <laughs> oh my, I'm 29. That's crazy. Oh, man. No, I didn't mean to make you feel old. I'm just thinking about all like the experience you've had. And because I mean, I've been doing comedy a little over seven and a half years. So, I mean, just another two decades. When you were three, I was full time. <laughs> That's <laughs> were, crazy. Were you doing the Barney Fife that early on? You know, about three or four years into it, I think, is when I started doing the Barney Fife. In the improv group, they had a s- couple of scenes where you had to be a celebrity. Oh, okay. Uh, Jeff Gage, one of our guys, was uh, Charles Nelson Riley from the uh, <laughs> right. match game and uh-huh. all that stuff. Another guy would rotate between like Ross Perot and uh, George Bush, the first one, and then different guys. And one guy was dead on Paul Schaefer. <laughs> and another guy did Sammy Davis. We're like, you ought to do one, man, so we can rotate you in the scene. And so I looked through the prop bag, and there was like a bus driver's hat. Mm-hmm. And I just kind of cocked it sideways and walked out one night, and like, "How y'all doing?" You know? <laughs> <laughs> and the place just went crazy. <laughs> and they're like, "Dude, you're gonna we have to bring you out last now because that's such a popular guy that you're doing." <laughs> and then over the years, I've kind of, you know, I've got a, a corporate, I call it a program. It's not a motivational speech, but it's a thing called the Mayberry Method, mm. where I use principles of the Andy Griffith Show in business. And so I, I bust into that thing in front of a corporate group as Barney Fife. I come through the back door you know, in uniform, blow my whistle. What's going on in here? You know, what? And then I pull out citations. You know, I get inside information on people from the company. Mm-hmm. And so I'm like, where's Bill Wilson at? You double parked your Jeep over there in the handicap zone. Like, you know, and so they dig all that stuff. And then after I give them their tickets, I take the hat off and ease into the, the speech or program, whatever you want to call it. So that's like it evolved from that one little bus driver's hat yeah. to like a, a corporate program where people get credits, like continuing education credits for attending my thing. So you are you Barney Five the whole time or you start off as Barney and then you're like, well, let me motivate you now, children. Yeah, well, I'll start off as Five and then uh, I'll reintroduce myself, you know, because <sighs> one gr- the first group wanted me to do the whole thing as Barney Five. Right. And about 11 minutes into it, I'm like, I don't think I need to be talking like this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and people are like, thank you. <laughs> So I kick it off, and then I, I have a, a five-minute stand-up piece that's in my regular sh- comedy show that I end with. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of comedy throughout. But that way I put the hat back on at the end, and Barney fires as I'm walking out the room. Do you ever get tired of it? or No, what, it's weird. Like When I first did it, it was out of necessity as far as this, as a corporate program, because they had hired me to do stand-up, and this was like in 2008 when the economy tanked. And they called me up and said, man, we want you to come, but we can't put comedian on the check. They're going to kill us if we do that. If we put speaker, uh, we can still have you come in. Hmm. And the guy, <laughs> this is my favorite line ever. He goes, can you not be funny for an hour? Like, <laughs> 24 in a row, my friend. <laughs> he said, you know, work in some jokes, but if you can talk about two or three points, uh, we'll have you. And so he suggested productivity and time management and goal setting. I'm Whoa. like, well, you know what? I could, I could learn 
as I'm putting this thing together, what I should be doing. Mm-hmm. And so the first one, I did just that. I went, I read every book I could on productivity, on time management, on setting goals. And then I found episodes of the Andy Griffith Show that coincided with those topics. And then I found jokes in my act that were about you know, me not doing something correctly or me not managing my time correctly, which we all have jokes. Every joke we have is about a, a bigger topic if we dig into it. Mm-hmm. And so I'd make sure that I, I had those laughs as well as the Andy Griffith reference and statistics and information to back it up. And the crazy thing is, you know, I did that and I thought it'd be kind of a one-off. And at that first one, I had a lady come up from the Department of Agriculture. She's like, I'd like to hire you for four events to do that program you just did. I'm like, you got I was really just winging it. I was, you know, seated my pants the whole way. Yeah. And I'm like, well, this might be something here. Uh-huh. And so I kept doing more research and adding different segments to it. But that first year that I did all the research, I'm like, well, I should be, you know, batching activities. You know what that is? Uh-huh. So, like, you could check your email all day long or you could wait till like, 4 o'clock go through there, delete all the junk, answer three or four real quickly, and you're done. I'm like, well, that would save me like an hour a day probably. Hmm. Um, editing podcasts. You know, I usually record two or three, then I'll edit them all in one day when I've kind of got the, the softwares open and I'm in the mindset. Um, what else do I do that way? You know, writing comedy. I'll mm-hmm. wait till I have a, a big chunk of time and do a bunch of it and block everything else out. But just little things like that I started learning. And that first year... You know, one year from the first uh, program I did, my business increased 38%. I love how you know the exact number. I know exactly because that year was so crazy because it was a horrible year for the economy. And it was my best year ever at that point. Hmm. And, you know, I I had three or four conferences just flat out canceled because they they couldn't afford to put them on. So the first quarter I'd lost a few gigs, you know. And then it kind of got some traction, and the speaking thing kind of was a nice way to augment the comedy stuff. Yeah. And approaching a job as a speaker, does that pay more than just being a comedian? Yeah, they tend to have a bigger hmm. budget for it because they are they have a kind of a quantifiable return on their investment. Gotcha. You know, whereas a comedy, right. like, okay, we laughed a little bit, but now we're back to work. Mm-hmm. There's groups that realize the importance of comedy. And I think the groups that hire me for my motivational stuff see that they will laugh throughout it, but they're also going to have some what they call takeaway points. Right. You know, I give them, I, I boil down three takeaways for each uh, topic that I have. And I usually do three little topics an hour. And you said it was productivity, goal setting. Time management. And time management. Yeah. That's the top three. Then I've also over the years developed for clients the customer service approaches. Um a handful of other things. Leadership is a big one. Mm-hmm. And I've kind of grown into learning about that. So, you know, I can do a, a two and a half hour session if they need me to. Wow. Yeah. And you mentioned that, hold on, what am I trying to ask here? I'm trying to ask something about me specifically, really, just because I've been doing comedy about a little over seven and a half years, like I said. And I just, I would say this year, maybe in the past couple months, made the shift from like, all right, I just, I just want to get as funny as possible and just consuming open mics and just doing as much stay time as possible. And now I'm like, okay, I need, because like as a comedian, you have two jobs. The show is a job and then the business is a job. So I've been working on the show for like seven years now. And now I'm trying to pivot and shift into focusing on the business and trying to help organize my day more, be more efficient with my entire like just game plan and goal setting and all that. So really, any advice you have on that end, I would really greatly appreciate. Yeah, I think that 
I call it defending your day in my in my program. But okay, you should know tonight before you go to bed what tomorrow's going to look like. Hmm. Now I didn't do that for a long time. You know, up until two thousand eight, I was taking phone calls. I was running off to gigs. Occasionally, I would you know send off my avails, but it was just kind of keeping up with stuff. But to get ahead of it, you really got to lay out a plan. So you know, most days as I'm headed off to bed, I write out a list of what I'm going to do before noon, and then. If I have time, what I do in the afternoon. Right now, when I'm home, I just have two hours uh, in the afternoon because my little daughter gets off the school bus at two, and I, I'm lucky enough to where I can be home and at age where I can just kind of hang out mm-hmm. and we just play, we color, we do chalk, we do whatever. So I try to get all my work done in the morning. But you should think about that. You know what? What you absolutely need to get to. Writing should always be in the mix each week. You know, even as you're working on your business. But you know you. You probably want to think long term and then back up what you need to do short term. So, if five years from now you want to be uh, featuring everywhere or headlining everywhere or wherever you know, people listening might need to move up as well, you know, how are you going to get there? You need X amount of minutes for sure. Mm-hmm. You need a, a probably double. I always say have double the time. If you're doing a feature spot, have a killer hour and you're going to crush anywhere because there'll be audiences that show up where that. You'll need that other 30 minutes of material. (laughs) It shrinks real quick. It does. (laughs) You know, and it's hard to be patient for that when you first start Mm -hmm. because you, I I need to move up because when I move to feature, I double my pay. When I move to headline, I double my pay. But you never move up uh, quick. You know, you don't move up as quick as you want ever. So just get used to that right now. And it's way better to be asked by somebody, hey, you want to headline next time through instead of you begging to headline next time through. Boom. So keep crushing that material to where no matter who the audience is, you're able to pull within your your jokes the right set for them, you know. And then just also where you want to be lifestyle-wise, you know, you're not married, right? Oh, I am married. You are married. I'm married as of April 1st. Oh, congratulations, this year, man. Yeah. On April Fool's Day. <laughs> exactly. Worked out great. <laughs> she still doesn't know it was a joke. <laughs> <laughs> she trusts me. That was the big thing. So you want to talk to her about where, where you guys want to be in five years and what she's doing to help get the, you two as a couple to that point and what you need to be doing. Mm-hmm. Um, it might look like more local gigs that pay better, or it might be more gigs out of town that pay better and less running around every single night of the week doing an open mic, you know, whatever that is. Yeah. And then, you know, other business stuff you could go on for days, but, you know, researching your, I always call it your ultimate audience, you know, who do you want to be performing for? Oh. Find out where they're at and go there instead of trying to hope they show up at the comedy club. Mm -hmm. You know, my ideal audience is rural America, hardworking blue collar people, I do fine in front of bankers and that kind of stuff too, but anybody that sweats a little bit during the day, that's my ideal audience. Farmers, people in ag, that kind of stuff. So when I have on my focus list for tomorrow to kind of, you can call it prospecting or you know looking for potential clients, I know who I'm looking for and I can spend time doing that. How early do you wake up? Uh, it's It's been a little weird this year because my wife just started working and she'll she's still getting the kids ready but i'm typically up at eight sometimes i'm up by seven okay you know, okay for a comedian that's like horrifying does it <laughs> oh i mean but, i'm up early though because yeah. I, I like to i've heard like time blocking is effective and i've tried i've experimented with different ways of like okay from eight to ten i'm focusing on just writing or whatever mm-hmm. or i'm focusing on um the podcast but then I may do that for like a week and then it just like falls off, you know, and then I'll, some days you're, especially the, the, the beauty of 
because I'm I'm a full time I'm full time comedian, and the beauty of it is you have the freedom to do whatever you want. But the the ugly part of it is yeah. you have the freedom to do whatever you shouldn't as well. Yeah, you got to be disciplined for sure. Yeah, totally. So I'm working on like having that organization and treating it like a job. Yeah, you know. I'll tell you one thing I learned too that is probably more helpful than you know planning stuff out the day before is knowing your like your zones, like when you're in the zone, mm-hmm. when you're out of the zone. I'm never in the zone at eight o'clock in the morning. Usually by 10, I've had my, my tea and my breakfast, and then my brain starts to kick in. So I'll never try to write first thing in the morning anymore. I'll wait till I've done a couple busy work things, answered a few emails that came in overnight or what have you. And then I set a, usually, you know, if my kids aren't home or anything, from 10 till noon or 1230, I turn off my phone, turn off the, the internet. I'm a computer working or whatever, but I'm not hmm. like, and that's when I'm writing. Okay. Or where I'm being creative. Uh-huh. And then when I feel like, okay, I've exhausted the creative part, I'll go back and do tasks, which is answering email or phone calls and that kind of stuff. Okay. So, but when whenever you're like fully locked in for the day, you know, some people are afternoon people, some people are evening, night, that's when you want to focus on your creativity because that's when your brain is firing on all cylinders. If you're okay. trying to be creative when it's just like, ugh. Like today, I, I was really wanting to get a little bit of writing done. My kids are home for fall break. And I did a little bit, but I'm like, I'm just not feeling it right now. I'm like, I'm going to be creative a little later on in the podcast with Joe. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to mow the yard because I can be brainless for 90 minutes and get that job done. Okay. Instead of having to do it tomorrow when I'm, the only time I have tomorrow is when I'm supposed to be focused. So I don't want to be mowing the yard then. It's just fo- like following your instincts. Yeah. Kind of like yeah. your body rhythms and that kind of thing. And not interesting, not working against it, but just kind of going with it. Yeah. You know? And another thing I admire you for is your business savvy. And even just hearing you from the beginning, it seemed like you kind of had that. Were you a business major? No, and looking back, I really wish I would have taken some business classes. I, oh, okay. In college, it was communications. Like I was hanging around the radio station doing shifts and the TV station. Okay. Any job where you could still get on the air with a mullet. You know? Right, washing it with egg whites, <laughs> uh, right? Yeah, Weren't yeah, you, you all about that? it? Yeah. I was all about it until I saw the George <laughs> Carlin special. Then I was... I was throwing stuff in the street and burning it. Uh, <laughs> Wait, what happened? Well, in I think if it was in college or right after I got out of college. I, I could look up the date. Um, but George Carlin had this HBO special, and the big push in the whole special was uh, a big segment he had on the environment and how I'm tired of these people. Let's save the planet. How arrogant are you that you think you, this little little thing that's going to die off in 60 years, is going to save this planet that's been here for billions of years, you know? <laughs> And he just went, you know, item by item of why I was stupid for recycling and everything else. And like uh-huh. the next day, I just started throwing bottles in the street. I'm like, He's right. <laughs> like one of his things is like maybe the planet just needs us to make plastic, and when it gets enough, it's going to belch us off of this thing or whatever. Oh, okay. And so that that was the first time, also, that I realized comedy could have a point, mm. and 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 a good comedian could change your point of view. You know, mm-hmm. I think a lot of comics now. I know there, a lot of them are trying to be social, uh, social, you know, social issue oriented, but they're not looking at the part of being funny while they're doing it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was just thinking that. Seriously. I, I mean, Trump is a super easy target. Yeah. I mean, he, he hasn't, you know, I'm not a political guy, but come on, can we do better? You know, <laughs> but if I just yell at Trump's an idiot, I'm, I'm not offering any solutions at the same time. Right. You know, if I'm vaguely offering solutions to Trump, that's still not really helpful because he's not going to be paying attention to me. So I, if I need to inform the audience of my opinion, but then give them an uh, option or else you've just left them in the same spot and you're, you've hyped them up and got them angry, mm-hmm. you know? <laughs> so it's just a weird thing. But Carlin was the first guy that kind of clued me in that you could do both. 
And uh, I didn't always agree with a lot of his points, you know, but that particular episode, that HBO special, I'm like, dang on, he's good. This yeah. Is, this is top level stuff right here. <laughs> yeah. So then you, you're doing radio and all that, a communications degree. Mm-hmm. And then you decided to do improv. When did like when did this business sense kick in? Because it took me seven, pretty much seven and a half years to be like, oh, I should I should make money at this. It seemed like you had it from the jump. I don't know. Like, money isn't the most important thing to me. But I, I learned really early on that you got to work hard to get it. Mm. You know, so even when I was in high school and college, when I was back in Kentucky over the summers, I was working something like eighty five hours a week <sighs> at a full time job at a horse farm, a loading dock at a department store. And then a second horse farm I'd work on on the weekend or do tobacco. <laughs> so it got to the point one, one summer I almost fell asleep and drove off the road, off a little country road. I'm like, okay, I got to pull back a little bit. I never minded working hard. Um, and I kind of just got lucky as far as like working smart. Like I, in college, I knew I didn't know much about finances and stuff. So one of my jobs at the radio station was to do a five minute daily. What did I call it? It's a little money segment. And uh, big money from Rush would be the intro song, and then, you know, big money from Rush. <laughs> and then I would just like pull down the stock numbers for the day and, and oh. read a couple financial stories, you know, and because I wasn't taking a, cl- a class for that in college, but we had the UPI and the AP wire feed coming right through the radio station, so I just started learning a little bit about it, you know, learning about how to invest and that kind of stuff, and it just always seemed like, I mean, it's, it's simple. It's like if you spend less than you earn and you got some money at the end of the week mm-hmm. and then you know with comedy with that improv group like they used to <laughs> they used to say the same thing like you're a businessman first because we would pay ourselves say we're doing a seven-day trip uh, when we got in the van everybody got 70 bucks 10 bucks a day to eat you know which back then was still wasn't much back then but you could get fast food and you could live off it well i'd put 35 in my pocket and never spend it. And I'd live off of 35 bucks a week on the road. Mm-hmm. And what I, what I would do if we were at a hotel or a condo for, usually at a hotel, um, I had like a little sandwich maker, kind of like a George Foreman grill and a cooler. And these guys would roll into town. They'd go to like Arby's or McDonald's or whatever. I'd go to the grocery store and buy lunch meat, cheese, pizza sauce, onions. <laughs> and then after the show, 1030, when they are all got the munchies and stuff, I'd fire up my, my grill and be selling sandwiches for three bucks a piece. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, so it was just like... Whoa. I don't know why, but it's just like survival. Yeah. You know? Yeah. You know I, I mean? Money is something I struggle with, even discussing money. And I think a lot of comics struggle with even understanding what their price even is. If somebody's like, how much would you charge for this? You're like, uh, $100. And they're like, oh, great. That's awesome. We were thinking it was going to be 1000 And right. you're like, blah, 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 blah. You know, how do you even name your price? Yeah. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways you can do it. So, you know, one person simply said, hey, if you want to make $50,000 a year, you need to make 1000 bucks a week. If you're doing three shows a week, make sure you charge at least three fifty. Hmm. You know, you can do it that way. Comedy is not that crisp and clean. You know, it'd be great if you could just break it down that way. Uh-huh. Um, but you can look at, you know, I think you should look at what you need not only to survive for a year, but also to be able to put something away. And as you develop your skills... You know, if, if you're not able to headline yet or feature yet and you're only MCing, what else can you do while you're MCing to earn some money? Now, there's a lot of things you could do. You, you could drive Uber or Lyft. I know a couple of comics that do that. Yeah. So in their off hours or even after the shows where you're still kind of wound up, they're just driving around a random t- a town. They don't have to live in that town. You know, you just flip on the button and you're good to go. Mm-hmm. So you can put away several hundred bucks a week doing that. 
Um, merchandise, of course, you know, selling merch. When I was MC and I would sell my business cards. What? <laughs> I know. Isn't that crazy? For how much? I'd sell them for a buck. <laughs> so uh, when I was MC and I would close it with a little Barney Fife joke. <laughs> and so I, I made these business cards that says, uh, you've been deputized by, uh, you know, Fife or whatever. And then I bought these little badges. I think they were like 15 cents a piece. And then I, I took a hole puncher, punched holes in my business card, put the little badge in there, and then I'd sign it. And I would do my little joke at the end of the show. I'm like, if you want to be deputized by five after the show, I get you a badge for a buck. <laughs> and so I was making like, you know, sometimes a hundred bucks on a Friday night, you know, and they had my business card as they walked out. <laughs> Nobody ever hired me. <laughs> you know, I was a, I was a right. horrible MC, but, <laughs> but that was like, you know, find some way to make a couple extra bucks while you're there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I had one friend that was a, a carpenter and he would go around doing comedy, but he'd look at the club when he walked in. He's like, oh, they could use some help here. And he would just tell the manager of the club, hey, I don't know if you see this piece of rotten wood over here, but uh, I can replace that for you and help you with this and fix a couple of these tables. Just whatever your skill set is, see if there's somebody there to buy it. Hmm. I, w- I would take my weed eater with me uh, when I emceed. Your weed eater? My weed eater. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So I'd take my weed eater. <laughs> yeah. I never told anybody this. So... Uh, <laughs> Most comedy clubs had a parking lot that okay. was just horrific. Uh-huh. Or they just they didn't have a lot of grass, but they had weeds right in front or around the edges or out back. And so uh, after the first or second night, once I got to know the manager a little bit, I'm like, hey, man, uh, you might, I could hit, hit my weed eater on this lot for you for like 30 bucks or something like that and knock it out. Oh, man, would you? Uh, even here in Nashville, Zanies, <laughs> they got a house uh, close to where the club is. Uh-huh. And so I would ask Brian, the guy that runs the club and owns Zanies. If you need somebody to trim the hedges, just let me know. I've got a hedge clippers. I can do it. So pick up a few extra bucks. Whoa. You know, then eventually, hopefully your gigs get better and you don't have to do stuff like that. Right. But 24 hours a day, you're only working for one of them. You know, go find some work. A lot of comics like the lifestyle of sleeping in. You can still sleep in the noon and go trim a hedge from two to four. Right. <laughs> you yeah. Know what I mean? So, I mean, whatever your skill set is, find a way you know, now you can write for other people. It's real easy on the internet to communicate. You could edit videos for people if you're good at that. Mm-hmm. Make posters, banner art, JPEGs, GIFs. I mean, there's just all, all kinds of little stuff that not everybody knows how to do. But a lot of comics know how to do it because you self-promote. So why not find, I always say find a comic that's ahead of you where you want to be and see what they don't have on their website and see if you can help them put it on there. Hmm. Maybe maybe you know how to design a website because you've done it for yourself. Look up your favorite comic. He's, he doesn't have a very good website. See if you can... Work that deal out. There's a guy here in town, Brett Brock. Do you know Brett? I don't know. Brett uh, took my comedy class a while back. He was in the military, retired, and he's a tremendous artist. And he loves comics. So he started just volunteer, voluntarily drawing posters for like um, Burt Kreischer. Right. Yeah. For um, Doug Stanhope, for a bunch of different comics. But he would just say, hey, He'd put him, hit him up on Twitter or Facebook or whatever. I got this art I did for you. Use it for whatever you want. Use it for T-shirts, promo, whatever. I just enjoy your comedy. Mm-hmm. He'd do that every week. Send him a different thing. And now I think both those guys have every single show poster for every single week they do. They're doing it through Brett. Whoa. So he's getting to know comics. You know, I don't know how much he's working with them or, or gets to interact with them besides that. But he's using a skill that he's got to get a little deeper into comedy. Yeah, that's what the guy who did all my stuff. His um, he did like a bunch of corporate illustrations, and then he transitioned into comedy. And his name is actually Comedy Artwork, 
And like I caught him at the very beginning where I was like, oh man, I'm, I'm, I dig this avatar. I was like, could you make me one and I like shut you out on the podcast and all this. And then now he's done all my logos. He's done show logos, my podcast logo. And since like, since then he's grown to be doing stuff for like um, Judd Apatow and like Joe List and like Mark yeah. Norman and all this. So it's cool to see these people just like doing this DIY, you know? Yeah, no, that's cool. There's, I mean, everything is so shareable now. Mm-hmm. You're one Twitter friend away from, you know, contacting somebody else on your big list of contacts. Yeah. There's really no excuse not to, you know, find the people you want to be connected with and connect. Yeah. You know, they may not connect back or they might think you're crazy or whatever, but if you, if you offer something for free and don't ask for anything in return, they're more likely to go, Hey, that was cool. Exactly. And they'll remember you. Yeah. You might you know, get a free couple free tickets and do a show or something like that down the road. But if you're just doing it cause you like them, it comes across. And you did it all without like agent or manager or anything. Yeah. Early on, I tried, I tried, uh, more than I should have early on to try to get some managers and stuff when I wasn't ready, mm-hmm. you know. And then when I got ready, I kind of learned how to do the business part of it and didn't necessarily need it, you know. And then a couple times I shot myself in the foot when I had opportunities, you know, where I, I was just being honest and I wouldn't have changed anything, but I didn't realize back then that people really listened. <laughs> like, for for example, I was doing um, a showcase for – Aspen or it was one of the festivals, you know, mm-hmm. it's in Columbia, Missouri with, you know, guys that are, you may or may not know, uh, Mark Gross, who was a writer and producer on, uh, Rodney Carrington's show. And then on Mike and Molly. Oh, okay. I and now he's on him. like another one of the, one of the big shows, but so he was on the showcase, a few other guys. And, uh, before the show started, I was sitting there talking to whoever's in charge of the showcase. They're like, so if, uh, if you, if you got into this festival, would you consider moving to Los Angeles? I'm like, never in a million years. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> He's like, really? I'm like, nah, so I'm more of a Midwest guy. You know, I said, I wouldn't mind doing sets, of course, or whatever. But uh, I think I'd never live there. Because I'd, I'd done sets there before at the improv group. Yeah. You know, we've gone to places with them. And just the whole vibe of people looking past your shoulders, see who they should be talking to instead uh, of you. Right. I mean, just that vibe. I'm like, I'm never going to be an L.A. guy. Yeah. And uh, so there's stuff like that where they're like, oh, okay, he doesn't even want this, you know. <laughs> they do these same kind of festival auditions at Zany's, and, you know, I go on last and do 20 minutes of local jokes. <laughs> just like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Because not it, even thinking after about 15, it. 20 comics, everything's been covered. Yeah. You know, so the, the only thing left the audience is going to laugh at is local stuff. Yeah. But there was nothing there that the uh, – the judges or whoever the talent scouts could really take back and say, this guy was good, you know? Well, how high were your goals? Because especially starting out, you're like, I want to be Richard Pryor and I want to da 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 and own the world with my comedy. But you're 27 years in, like, did you have these big goals and now you just kind of dial them in like a more specific direction as you progress? What is that whole Yeah, early on. My only goal early on was to not have to go back to a day job. Okay. Early on. And so, really, I think even if during my first year full time, I still occasionally delivered a pizza or something like that. But after that, it's been full time. So I got that pretty quick. Mm-hmm. And then it's always been about lifestyle. I think for me, my next big goal wasn't to move to LA or New York. Is like, could I support a family doing comedy? Because that's the two things I want: a family and I want to be able to still tell jokes. And so I was able to do that. And so now my goal is: can I do comedy and at the same time provide? a benefit for somebody, whether it's raising money for a cause, uh, bringing, you know, focus to an issue, 
I'm big about doing fundraisers and stuff right now. So I've, I've, I've been blessed where I can do comedy full time. I've got a family and now it's just like, there should be a reason why I'm still doing this. Yeah. You know, so I get more out of it by doing it for somebody else than just to go and do a gig and, you know, cash a check. Yeah, aren't you like the president of like the Christian Comedy Coalition or what's it called? Coalition's a good word. But it's, it's, it's not coalition. I'm sorry. <laughs> Association. Association. I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah so that was a <laughs> that was an interesting thing too. Um, I'm trying to think of how many years I've been in it. Probably since 2009. You know, and that that started with Shonda Pierce, who was the president at the time. She helped found the whole thing many years before that. But she saw I was teaching comedy classes at Zany's. She said, would you mind coming down and teaching a class for our Christian comedians? You know, we can always get better. And some of these guys think they're funny. Some of these guys are telling stories, but they don't know where the punchline is. Mm -hmm. Just like any group of people. And so I went down, and uh, part of that was they always kick off the conference on Sunday night with a showcase, like some of the best Christian comics. And I was blown away, like, how talented these guys were. And I'm like, wow, I should uh, check into this group. Mm Because I'm a Christian. I grew up, I definitely strayed for many years in my 20s to where I was just the the horrible person. Oh, how horrible. I never killed anybody. Okay. You know, but besides that, (laughs) uh, just like pretty aimless. You know, am I living the dream or am I like walking in a nightmare kind of thing? Okay. And so I thought this was a great opportunity to not only get back to my roots and my faith, but to be accountable to some people too. You know, we don't like chase each other down and yell at us. You know, I saw you swearing. You know, it's not like that. But but you've got more people you can call up if you're struggling with something and help them out. Mm -hmm. And so uh, a few years into it, about eight years into it or so, uh, opportunity came for me to kind of be in charge of it for a couple of years. And it's a volunteer deal. So you're looking at hundreds of hours a year to kind of put into it and put the conferences (laughs) together. But it's been so rewarding. And to see the impact. Like I know when I'm teaching comedy to the Christian comedians for sure, 90% of those people are going to be doing shows that are outreach events for churches, which means church is going to put on a clean comedy night. People who've never been to church before might pop in and check it out. Or you can invite a friend that doesn't attend church and they can just see churches aren't cults, you know, not all of them. There's, yeah. there's crazies everywhere. <laughs> so I know that by them being better at telling jokes, the comedy show might get more people there and somebody might, find out about Jesus Christ because of a comedian. Right. Yeah. So, so my efforts with that group is it's really rewarding to see the light bulb go off and people having better shows and getting more traction. And then a lot of the people there too do anything from, from churches to um, there's a, a group that I work with called new missions and they start schools in Haiti and help kids get clothes for school, get to school, get fed at school and get their books. And they've been doing that for like 30 years to where now some of those kids are teaching the classes and, preaching in churches there so it's you see the long-term impact of things uh, other other christian comics do recovery nights so a lot of christians come to christ because they had a really dark bottom they bottomed out and they needed help right and that's kind of where god reaches for you because it's that's for the first time in your life like i can't do it by myself uh-huh. so a lot of comics will do shows for people that are recovering from drugs or alcohol so just being able to help them connect the dots and get to those people who need it like that's just super rewarding more than just going and I'm a headliner now. Like, what does that really mean? You know? Yeah. So it's like, but you have to have material obviously to do that. And you have to be good at your craft to, you know, hold down an audience for an hour, an hour and a half or whatever it might be. Still got to be funny. Still got to be funny. Whether, whatever your message is, it's got to be funny. It's got to be tight. um, (laughs) And you just got to, you got to know what you're doing. Yep. So yeah, I think the ultimate goal for me is just to, Keep on learning, get better at what I'm doing, 
and but empower as many people to to get to that spot too, where they can turn it around and, and give it away and do something for somebody else. We were doing that with so many different platforms, man. I, I first discovered you on your podcast, School of Laughs, and then just checking out everything you've done from. Not only you don't even just do comedy classes, you've broken it down into like you have a writing class, a performance class, a business class, you have online classes, your your podcast itself is a class. And you really School of Laughs really inspired Hot Breath to come along. Like is that right? this started out the podcast started out because I'm from Atlanta, still live there. Like I'm in I'm kind of in the same mindset with LA or New York is like I'll go if they're calling me if like if it's for a job but i'm just not going to move and start over there's Mm -hmm. too much opportunity in atlanta and we had 10 comics on last comic standing one summer so i was like oh man i should like capture this so i interviewed all of them and then i was like well i guess i should keep it going and then just started interviewing atlanta comics then it's since grown into just interviewing comics and then it's since grown really from listening to yours and you started interviewing like uh, social media people, um, different um, uh, bookers and club owners. And I was like, oh, yeah, I guess there's more to our artists. And mm-hmm. Yeah, you can be comedy minded, but you can learn from everyone. So that's what the podcast has evolved into is just interviewing everyone that I think has an expertise that I can extract. And then you can synthesize it into whatever your field is. So that's really school of laughs. I, I I'm I'm, t- I'm here to tell you I stole it. I stole hey, school right. of laughs right. from you. But it's, well, it's really it's been inspiration. Well, thanks, man. I um, uh, you do have a killer scene in Atlanta, mm-hmm. and I like your style of interview, and it's pretty laid back. And you've you've had good guests on as well. You yeah, know? it's been great. But I think you're right. There's more. You know, we can talk to comics all day long, and it's going to be enjoyable. But occasionally, you do need to learn how to have a, a social media strategy, or yep. you know talk to the booker about colleges so you know what to do if you want to get into college book, you know? Mm-hmm. And I just think back when I first started, there, there was nothing like that. I mean, even listen to Mark Maron, which I love his podcast. He's not act, asking bookers how a guy who's open mic can, can get into, you know? And so that's like a little, if I can help a little stepping stone, somebody out there, I may never meet him, you know, but yeah. it's just like, I, I, the podcast was like, what did I wish I knew back then? And what do I need to know now? If I cover either of those things each week, then it's it's definitely worth doing, and it's kind of it's like a digital green room for people who don't have a club close by, you know. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. So yeah, it's been a cool thing to do, and I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you found it. Glad you're doing yours. Yeah, dude. It's I've been learning a lot, and it's funny you've been doing it 27 years. A lot of these, I mean, for lack of a better word, I guess seasoned comedians are like this technology and these kids. Like, do you have any of that in you, or is it just like, oh, cool, we just keep evolving? Uh, what I learned, and I think from interviewing these social media people, was you can't do everything. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's comics. John Chris is a great example. Guy's great on doing short vines or, or short little Facebook posts, and they're short. They're one subject. They're shareable, and and that he's killer at that. You know, my thing is more of a podcast. It's a little bit more long form. Um, some people. Instagram heroes, and I, I don't know how you do a story on Instagram, you know, uh-huh. but people have Instagram stories, they have Facebook stories, they have Facebook Live, lots of opportunities, but if you try to do all of them, you're going to run yourself ragged, you know, mm. mm-hmm. so I try to focus on, like, the online class, I try to put a lot of effort into that, the podcast, um, I do some mentoring one-on-one Skype type stuff, Yeah, and but it's really more focused on helping others, because I always benefit from it. You know, some of the people that were in my classes, yeah, like something I never thought about starting out, but 
they have a day job and then their day job needed somebody to come in and be funny at their Christmas party yeah. or a trainer for a, so I've, I've, I've gotten roundabout gigs in different ways from just helping somebody out down the road, but so, you never think that far ahead. You know what I mean? Seems like a lot of your connections have just come organically. Yeah. Just well, being a nice person. Well, <laughs> when you're not hilarious, you need to be nice. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Which was a lesson I learned early on about, um, I've, I've told it my show before, but it's, it's worth hearing again, I think, is, you know, if you're at the club and you're in comedy clubs only, uh, just be the nicest guy and the most helpful person you can be throughout the week. Because there's enough jerks every week. Mm-hmm. Usually on a three-act show, there's one jerk, one guy that's kind of trying to figure out if he should be a jerk or should be nice, and there's one nice guy. <laughs> and it's, as soon as you figure out which one of those you are, you know, you may want to change or not. But there was one club I was working at, and I was looking at the list of upcoming comics, and I'm like... Oh man, that hack! That uh, hack's headline here next week. Right behind me was a club manager. Yeah. Uh, you know, so the other comic's <laughs> like X nay, X nay. You know, it's just like an old episode of Hogan's here. Like he's standing right behind me, isn't he? <laughs> and so the club manager goes, "Well, you know, uh, I book people that I enjoy being around, and you used to be one of those people. <laughs> oh, so unless you straighten out your attitude, uh, you won't be on this sheet next time." Yep. I'm like, "All right, message received." So I wasn't being mean to that person. In their face, you know, but the attitude, she didn't need the attitude at the club. And really, what am, I, what am I to gain? This is also at the same time I learned. I don't get any funnier by calling that guy a hack. Mm-hmm. I just spent, if I spent a whole day in a condo, if you've ever been in a condo for a week with comics, a third of the time they're complaining about bookers, clubs, or other comics. During that six hours, you could have been riding, resting, or getting better. Yep. You know, but it's just so easy to start slipping down that slope of talking about other comics in a negative way. Just work on your own thing. A big, a big uh, teacher is failure for sure. Big time. And um, something all comedians do is bomb along the way. And I ask all my comedians on here an epic failure on stage, uh, a booze story, if possible. And in 27 years, there's got to be at least one gig out there that oh, was yeah. just. Epic failure. There's only one gig that wasn't. Uh, <laughs> 27 years. Yeah. It's, it's tomorrow's gig. Uh, maybe. We'll see. We'll find out. I just do the Barney fight. I think the one that was on the biggest scale okay. was a New Year's Eve show I was doing with the improv group. We were in Kellogg Arena in Battle Creek. 4,000 tickets. <sighs> they had us. It's an arena. So they got the floor. They got the lower level. Off of the upper level, they, they put a stage on scaffolding so that everybody on the other side of the arena could see us and the people that were having dinner seated on the floor could see us. They could see us. They couldn't hear us very good. Mm-hmm. We were using the, the big Bertha sound speaker. It's in the middle of Kellogg Arena with a microphone that was feeding back like every 10 seconds. And we're improv, so we're not right on the mics like a comic would be. We're three feet, five feet away. And so we we got through our first two sketches you know, with a little reaction. The third uh, scene that we did was Mr. Know-It-All, where three people sit down, they they answer a question one word at a time. Hmm. So like there'd be a host, he would get a question from the audience, you know, what's the meaning of life? Mr. Know-It-All, what's the meaning of life? I think that life is all about, you know. Gotcha. And you try to answer it. If you answered it even close to, you know, something that sounded right, they would clap and laugh or whatever. This is all with one microphone? Yeah, so he okay. he would kind of give us so. <laughs> well, I guess we probably had a mic on a stand, so we would give our answer, and then like the second question goes, "All right, who else has a question for Mister Know It All?" And like from, 
I don't know, as far as you could be in an arena in a corner where it echoed across the entire place. The guy goes, when does, does the comedy star start? <laughs> and the whole place goes, yeah, when does it start? <laughs> you know? And it was just like the <sighs> Gary Fields who runs a great ran a great club, a couple of different clubs up in Battle Creek for many years. He he just came on stage and goes, Guys, it's totally my fault. I should have had you in a different place, mic'd up better. You're done for the night, you still get paid, go party, it's New Year's, let's have a good time. And then he told everybody in the arena, he goes, Hey, anybody that's here tonight bringing your ticket to my club this weekend, you can got see the guys in a real comedy club environment and it's on us. Oh, okay. So, you know, was, we made out okay with it, but it was just like Really, in front of 4,000 people, we just <laughs> yelled at. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably the worst as a group. There's there's a few just individually when I was doing stand-up to where it always comes down to where I didn't I, – I wasn't aware of the situation. Gotcha. Like there was a guy – I was doing a one-nighter somewhere in Wisconsin or – yeah, probably Wisconsin. And everybody was digging the show throughout the show. The first two acts, I get on stage. But there's one guy at the bar that was just talking loud the whole time on his phone – wasn't even looking at the the comedy show. And so I'd had it, you know, like the first two comics didn't say anything. The crowd was noticeably disturbed. Like that side of the room couldn't enjoy the show. They kept turning their and so I got on. I'm like, listen, all right, here's the deal. You guys have been real patient. You've been laughing, but uh, I'm not gonna keep on going unless this guy over here gets off the phone. What do you guys think? And they're like, Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the guy turned around and goes, I've got your paycheck. <laughs> he was the owner of the bar. <laughs> and I'm like, we're gonna just plow through it, guys, because <laughs> And so uh, that's how you start the headlining set. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Because I'm a freak. nice guy, but if I see like some something not being solved, it gets under my skin. Uh huh. So I just went right after the guy, right off the top, and like it took me a little while to get the crowd back because they were like, should we, should we laugh or should we let him talk quietly? On the, you know, just a weird deal. Oh, but you got the crowd. You got yeah, the crowd okay. was good. Well, Rick Roberts, how you not well, gonna get yeah, the crowd? Maybe, you know? Yeah, but <laughs> reel them in. Cool, man. I'm Dude, so happy you came through. Thanks for having me, Rick. Thanks, Hope you enjoyed that episode where I got the tables turned on me and was interviewed by Joel Byers, B-Y-A-R-S. Joel has a podcast. You can check him out at Hot Breath with Joel Byers. Google that. His podcast will come up. If you enjoy the School of Last podcast, you're going to love his. He does a similar kind of thing, interviewing comedians and people connected to the comedy industry. Uh, very, very cool show, and you want to give him a listen. Hey, if you are listening to this on the release date, I'm recording a new live comedy CD at Third Coast Comedy Club, downtown Nashville, at the Marathon Music Works building, 7.30 p.m. For podcast listeners, I just swung a deal this very afternoon of getting you free tickets. So if you want to come in for free, watch my show. There's no two-drink minimum or any of that going on. It's just pure comedy tonight. I could use a few bodies in the room and a few laughs on the CD. So come on down. You can email me. uh, Or how about this? Yeah, yeah. go ahead and email me, schooloflaughs at gmail.com, and I'll get back with uh, more information and location and all that kind of stuff. So come on out. Be part of the group. Have fun. I get to meet you face-to-face. That's even better. Other than that, guys, that's going to wrap it for this week. Stay safe and stay funny. Thanks for listening to the School of Laughs podcast. If you'd like to hear more School of Laughs podcasts, you can find them on iTunes and Stitcher.com. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. For information on upcoming live and online classes, visit SchoolofLaughs.com. Until next time, stay tuned, stay focused, and stay funny.